the book of Acts in chapter 6. If you're using the Pew Bibles, you'll find in front of you, you can find this passage on page 914. Page 914. Well, we have gotten to hear and respond already to the story of Easter, how Jesus Christ, crucified on Good Friday, rose from death on Sunday morning. Arguably the most miraculous event in human history. But what does it have to do with us 2,000 years later? Many will readily admit that Jesus, the historical person who lived on this earth, left a lasting legacy. After all, his teachings still remain. You'll see them inscribed in various places, occasionally quoted, even finding their place in songs. But let's know why or how Jesus' story would have more relevance and significance for them than, say, any other popular person. Say, Gandhi or Einstein or the Beatles. Shouldn't we have a special category for the one and only person who died and then lived? But even more than that, shouldn't the story of Jesus the resurrected influence and impact the story of our lives? Well, that's what our passage this morning will press us to consider. That Jesus is the one around which and around who our lives should revolve. His is the history. And our stories are significant when they are part of Jesus' story. And so we open to Acts chapter 6, verse 8, and we will go through to verse 8, verse 3. This passage is full of history. It's kind of like when you watch TV of somebody watching TV who they themselves are watching TV. It's kind of like that. So... It's, it's me that's about to tell you what Luke told his reader about what Stephen told his audience about God's history. This is all about how the story of Jesus' kingdom goes forward, even in persecution. So if you're visiting with us for the first time, maybe this is the first time you've ever been in a church like this. I do hope that this time is very helpful for you. We're glad you're here. We hope you'll come back next Sunday. We're currently studying through this book of the Bible called Acts, which tells us how after Jesus rose from the grave, he ascended back into heaven. And when he left, he sent his messengers, his apostles, into the world to carry on his ministry. So we've been following the early days of that movement. The Christian church has started meeting. The Holy Spirit is working through Jesus' words to save more and more people. But as we follow that story, we have found that resistance has steadily been growing to the movement. Peter and John have already gone to jail twice. And now in this passage, Stephen's going to get in trouble with Jewish authorities for what he's teaching. So we pick up the story there. I'll start reading in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, and read through verse 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. 
Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, meaning the temple and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, it will become clear as Stephen answers these opponents, which he is about to do, that they have a specific lens with which they view their history. They're Jewish and regard the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai and the temple as the pinnacle events of their history. The law as the code of the true Jew. The temple as the only place where God dwells. And their esteem for these places and things was understandable. But short-sighted. The problem with their read of history is that their history stopped there. Apparently, they are bothered to hear Stephen suggesting that Moses' law isn't ultimate, nor the temple the one and only holy place. Stephen comes with a different read on their history. They don't get Stephen because they don't get how God is working in history and therefore don't understand how he's working even in their own lives. Where their history stops, God's story goes on. What Stephen says in response to these false accusations and misunderstandings, how his listeners respond, and what happens after that, that's pretty much the breakdown of the rest of this text. We're going to approach it through three headings. This will be my outline of the rest of what I say, if you want to take notes. Three things. First... The story about Jesus. Second, your story is about Jesus. And third, the rest of the story will be about Jesus. The story about Jesus, your story is about Jesus, and the rest of the story will be about Jesus. My prayer and aim is that we will all be able to know how we can be part of the story that begins and ends with Jesus. So first, the story about Jesus. Stephen's speech that I'm about to read is actually the longest speech in the whole book. And an example of how to read the Old Testament with Jesus Christ as the focus. So see if you can follow that thread as I read Stephen's response, starting in chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. 
And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed... Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew back, as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? This man, God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angels, spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. 
As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphon, the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen walks through the entire Israelite history. Abraham, the patriarchs, Joseph, Moses, David, Solomon, the prophets, quoting Amos in verse 42 and 43, Isaiah in verse 49 and 50. He shows how the signs like circumcision point ahead to the need for circumcised hearts. The rulers and redeemers like Joseph and Moses were types of Christ. Prophecies like the one from Moses in verse 37 get fulfilled in Jesus when he comes. This is biblical theology at its best. So if you haven't yet noticed Jesus all over the pages of the Old Testament, well, you're in for a treat when you start looking for him there. Along the way, Stephen also corrects the council's erroneous view that the story hinges on Moses' customs and the temple as the holy place. God's activity with his people started long before Moses with a promise to Abraham. When Abraham was not living in the land that was promised. And Abraham had neither the law given on Sinai nor the temple built by Solomon. Yet God came to him and made a covenant with him. And Abraham responded in belief and followed him. As far as Moses in the temple goes, those laws weren't actually, Stephen says, from Moses, they weren't appropriately called Moses' customs because they were delivered from God through angels to him. And the temple, while well, a place where God decided and chose to make his presence among his people, that was never the one and only place where God said he'd be. The important place was where God chose to be, be it a bush in the wilderness or in a tabernacle roaming through the desert lands or with his people in foreign lands like Abraham, and most clearly when he himself came to earth as Jesus, the righteous one. 
verse 52. So there are different eras of history. You find them unfolding and progressing even in the Bible. But each and every one hinges on one era. The perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the powerful, life-giving, death-defeating resurrection of Jesus. The story of history is that God sent Jesus Christ as ruler and redeemer to deliver people from their slavery to sin and their affliction brought under the curse of their own sin. That is the story that I want you to know today. As you notice that throughout Israel's history, God keeps sending help, rulers and redeemers of various kinds, whether it be Joseph or Moses or others, people that exercise God's good authority and to bring God's people from out of bondage. If God kept doing that, even though his people kept falling back, and his people kept needing that, what does that tell you about what we need? We need a ruler. We need a redeemer. We need Jesus. We need help. Left to our own rule, we end up afflicted as slaves. So if you're here and you would not call yourself a Christian or a follower of Jesus, again, let me say, we're glad you're here. How do you read human history? What do you understand is the central theme or purpose of our life here on earth? I wonder if, as we've been taught in classes growing up, I wonder if even as you read American history, have you noticed that through Stephen's lens, it is a tale of our desperate need of a true ruler and redeemer? Is in our history one of a people pursuing autonomy from a king and seeking independent rule. So the founders came to this land. Since then, hasn't there been civil war and two world wars and many other wars? We've suffered from infighting, racism, political division, economic depression, revolts, and many, many, many murders. We cannot have an open-eyed view of history and still claim reasonably that humanity can save ourselves. We need God's chosen ruler and redeemer. Anxious Christian, perhaps my brief survey of American history just then, with a very pessimistic view. Perhaps that causes you to remember how afraid and nervous you are about today or about tomorrow. You wonder what troubling event lies around the corner. Remember, all history is subject to God's guidance. And God loves you. You can be at peace regardless of the political climate or who wins the elections we just had or are going to have or what legislation passes next year or next decade. 
Now, you likely won't hear Stephen's version of history in a secular school classroom these days. But despite many attempts to do so, God cannot be revised out of history. He is the truth underneath everything. No matter how much power and pressure is applied to deny that through society's propaganda, do not let deception, no matter how popular, cause you to doubt that God's story is true. God's story primarily tells us about the God who writes it. You see in Stephen's retelling how patient God is, how persistent, how merciful, faithful to his promises, mighty to deliver, infinitely bigger and better than any human category we apply to him. He is not bound to any place or custom. His character from it, we understand what is right and wrong. His presence purifies unclean places and people. God's plan can stretch across generations and centuries because he himself is eternal. And God plans and guides a history that leads to him giving himself for our redemption. Of all the options he had, this is the one he chose. Church, God's story is all about Jesus. So as Jesus' followers, we, more than anyone, should, be, should know this story. We should know it and be able to explain it to others clearly like Stephen does. So read the Old and the New Testaments in your Bible. Don't skip one over the other. Parents, read a storybook Bible with your kids like the one I read from earlier. That sees all scripture through a Jesus lens. Pick up a book in the bookstall about biblical theology or listen to a podcast like one entitled Bible Talk. The better you know this story, the more safe and secure you can be knowing how Jesus' story is and will continue to be the central theme of our story as Christians. Which leads us into my second main point. Your story is about Jesus. I'm going to read verse 54 to 60. Understanding with this, I won't reread it again, but understand with this that some of the things I'll say after this include verse 51 through 53. I just won't reread that. I'll pick up in verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Everyone is presented in this passage, including verse 51 through 53, is presented in this passage based on what they do with Jesus. 
The opponents who may seem to win in the end by force are evaluated as stubborn and uncircumcised, resisting the Holy Spirit, murdering God's Son. In short, they are called not God's people. While Stephen, though murdered, is the one who believes in Jesus and gets to see Jesus' kingdom even before he goes there. Might does not make right. God makes right. And God consequently holds all the might necessary to hold everyone accountable for how we respond to him. God's story governs our own, not the other way around. God understands your whole life to be a heart response to him and his activity. Let me say that again. God understands your whole life to be a heart response to him and his activity. We are all expected to see God and his son as the prime mover and the main point because that is what is true. Now, that is not the impulse of our culture. In many ways, you are encouraged regularly to think about history as revolving around your moment or our moment, your legacy, what you will leave behind. So get your bucket list done. Make a mark on history. Do something no one else has ever done. Present scholarship acts as if all previous contributions are irrelevant because now is what's most important. I remember in college reading Western civilization history and wondering what I would need. This is, this is serious, giving you a lens into college student Philip's mind. Wondering in those classes what I would need to do to be remembered in those classes after I died. To have my name mentioned. I remember in my 20s wrestling with what I would do with my life. I wanted to do something great. Something that would last. Which led me at that point to a career in politics. But when I got there, I saw people clamoring for influence and power. Giving whole lives to pursuing a position. Some never got it. Others who did were quickly forgotten. Ambition for human status is a fickle and fleeting thing. Think about it. How many U.S. senators can you name? What about the ones from 10 years ago? How many rulers of countries today can you name? Let alone 100 years ago. And if you could name 20 do you have any idea what they did? And if anything of what they did has any bearing on your life. Friends, your story, no matter how great in other people's lives, will not determine the course of human history. It just won't. But Jesus' did. And Jesus' does. Which is why we should each live for him. 
I realized in my Washington, D.C. days that my legacy only really matters in how it connects to Jesus. I could try to do something other people call remarkable, but that would quickly fade. But if I served Jesus and helped others do the same, then I realized the impact of that would last forever. For me, God's story was what finally made sense of my life. And I know that's true for you too. You and I were made to enjoy him and the world that he made. To enjoy life with him no matter who we are, no matter what job we have, no matter what country we were born in. God's story makes sense of our world. When Jesus is the center of human life, then things like love and life and flourishing happen, as we've already been witnessing in the early days in Acts. But when we try to be the center, we destroy the world. You would think that everyone would want to be a part of what God is doing. And yet Jesus is rejected every day. Like Stephen's opponents, millions of people, maybe even some of us, pursue religious activities void of Jesus. We engage in idolatry, giving our money and attention to things that steer us away from Jesus. Even many of us familiar with Jesus look at our world with Jesus just in one little part, rather than Jesus being the way we see the whole world. We have a tendency to put our trust in all the wrong places. And Stephen makes the point that that is a bad idea. Because only Jesus can save us. We each so badly need Jesus' rule over us and redemption for us to be our story. So the opponents want to hope in the customs of Moses. But Stephen says, that's a bad idea. Because they never keep the law, verse 53. They wanted to believe that they could obey God on their own, but Stephen shows them and says that's a bad idea. After all, isn't their whole history a story of them being told to worship God and then immediately doing the opposite, verse 38 and 39, chapter 7? Still today... We want to rest on our own assurance that God is pleased with the sacrifices we make. That we go to church on Easter. That we give to people doing good things. But when it comes to giving God our hearts and our lives, there's still plenty we hold back for our own use. So thankfully, all the things that the Jewish people in this passage were putting their hope on, thankfully, that we see the hopelessness there we find that what the law and the religious sacrificial system in the temple was powerless to do, Jesus did. All the rejecting and refusing of Jesus that we have done, all the condemnation under God's holy law that that deserves, Jesus takes care of that by dying condemned on a cross under our curse. I hope you and I can see and believe What Stephen's opponents could not. That the man they murdered, Jesus Christ, deliberately gave his life for lawbreakers, idolaters, and rebels, including you and me. That was always the plan. 
That was always God's story. God would send his son into the world as he determined not to condemn us for sin, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus to save us. And so if you, too, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death for you and his life for you, and turn from the sin that he died for, you, too, will be saved by him, your Redeemer. Christian, through Jesus, God intertwined your story with his. He took you from afflicted, like the Israelites in Egypt, to adopted as members of his family. He has moved you from slave to saint. And this gracious act on his part gives us so many reasons to thank him. And part of how our gratitude gets expressed is how we use the good gifts he gives us. So with the new hearts he gives us, we obey him. With the promises he repeats to us, we believe him. Having his son as our ruler and redeemer, we follow him. With his Holy Spirit in us, we live for him. Let me also say that part of our gratitude is going to be shown through our witness to Jesus. Stephen shows us what it means there even in his execution, of what it means to be a Jesus witness in this world, full of God's spirit. He's confident in God's truth. He's committed to making Jesus known. He is calm in the face of opposition. Stephen knows that above all, Jesus' story is the one that deserves to be told. As we think about Christ's death on Good Friday... And his resurrection this morning. Church, what an amazing gift we've received. Life. Freedom. A place in God's kingdom. Tell others that story. When his life ends, Stephen looks like Jesus. Did you notice that? He served others in his ministry, chapter 6, 1 through 7. That was last week. He taught that the scriptures were fulfilled in Jesus, like the risen Jesus had done with his disciples. He was falsely accused like Jesus, tried like Jesus, executed by a mob like Jesus, and died asking for the same things as Jesus, forgiveness for his murderers while he committed his spirit to God. Christian, Jesus intends to tell his story through your life too. Invite him to use your life that way. Here's a good purpose statement for us as we go to work this week, as we engage our families this week at home and kids. Here it is. May Christ be seen in me. This is a purposeful approach. It's one that we can have as we engage our relationships so that our spouses might receive Christ and experience Christ from us. That our kids might see Christ in us. That our church would be helped to follow Christ through us. Living for Christ gives us purpose. Even in suffering and mistreatment. The end of Stephen's life was like a replay of Good Friday. Stephen saw Jesus in his stoning. And the witnesses at his death saw Christ-likeness. No matter where the road takes us, it is a high honor to walk in our king's path. There's no question where our story is going. 
And that leads me to our last point. The rest of the story will be about Jesus. Look at chapter 7, verse verse, um, 8, assuming, knowing that we've already read verse 54, which will, 54 through the end of 60 will also come to play in my last point. I'm going to read chapter 8, verse 1 through 3. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. There is, as you take these two passages, 54 to 60 and 8, 1 through 3, there's a contrast here. And it's not between Stephen and Saul. It's between Jesus and Saul. Saul, in an effort to control what he understood to be the kingdom, uses his authority to oversee execution. Jesus, on the other hand, as the absolute authority reigning in heaven, uses even Stephen's execution at the hands of Saul to advance his kingdom, as the rest of Acts will tell us. This is the way it's always been. Fallen human beings on earth attempting to suppress the kingdom of God versus God who rules and reigns from heaven. In the end, who do you think will win? What will the rest of the story be? Well, as I said before, come back in the next few weeks. We'll figure it out from Acts together. But let me give you a little spoiler. Saul, in not too long, is going to be changed by the power of the resurrected Jesus. And even Saul's efforts right here to stop Jesus will eventually lead to the growth of Christ's kingdom. Jesus wins. In 8.1, we're told that Stephen's death spreads Christians, scattered, it says, beyond Jerusalem. But with them goes the message of Jesus Christ. The blood of one martyr becomes a seed for the global church. Jesus exercised his governing authority through his spirit, changing people to know and love and follow him from the inside. And Saul tries to do that with a sword. Not only did that not work, but when Saul becomes a Christian in Acts chapter 9, he abandons any notion that the way to see Christ's rule on earth was to set up God's kingdom through civil government. There is no human government that can make people want to worship God. And there is no human resistance that will stop God from making worshipers for himself. God is pursuing a story he wrote long ago. The people he made to worship him were separated from life with him because of sin. But through Jesus' word and Jesus' spirit and his son, God is making us into true worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. If all history is moving toward the eternal worship of God, which way is your story going? There is no future in resisting the rule of Jesus. The people who resist Jesus kill to try to preserve control of the narrative. 
Even then, they remain to us as examples of folly and deserving of God's final judgment. Is that the direction you want to go? Is that what you want to align your life with? If only our society would see that the bow to Christ is life. Stephen sees Jesus standing in authority in heaven. There no power, no human authority or government can touch him. And Stephen understands that though his death be brutal, when he dies he'll be with Jesus. So what will you do with Stephen's vision passed to us in this history? If you don't know Christ, if you don't intend to follow him, how are you going to dethrone a king who came from heaven, died and yet rose from death and ascended back to heaven? People thought they could kill him to win. But in dying, he rose in victory. They didn't kill him. And they won't. So let me give you a better option, which is good news to you and me. Christ can be your king. Because he was killed to win over your death on your behalf. Saul was trying to forcibly preserve a legacy. Stephen was allowing God to work through him. Saul was striving and struggling and warring. Stephen was submitting and resting knowing Christ reigns. For those resting in this king, that is comfort to you in any situation. We can gladly put down our efforts for power. Levers of control, anxious toil, manipulation for our own way. Our anchor is in heaven, it is not here. Our times, for however long they be, are in our Father's hands. Stephen's faith in trial comes from knowing whose he is and where he's going. This is the testimony that we want younger people to see in us. Stephen was a normal guy with a huge heart for Christ. And because of it, he was the standard of the kind of courage and confidence in Jesus that we want to be true of us, church. Saul would actually later write as Paul, for, to me, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And I wonder if he didn't learn that first from watching Stephen die. So what are your kids or our teenagers here, or college students, or young parents, or middle-aged adults, what are we seeing from each other, church? May our lasting legacy be that others saw us happy for God to write our stories to be used for his glory. Be willing for Jesus to use you in any way he deems. When it's all over, we want our story to be, we got to glorify Christ in our service to each other. We want to be able to say that, that we even got to glorify Christ in our suffering for his name. So for every tomorrow he gives, may each be a story about how God uses us to glorify Jesus. And yes, sometimes tragedies will strike. But martyrs don't end the story, they propel it. Suffering doesn't stop God. He works through it. Stephen went home to his Savior that day for eternity, and his sacrificed life pushed the name of Jesus to where it wasn't yet known. 
Even in the middle of tragedy, we're not helpless. Unexpected suffering is not an indication that God has lost control of our story. At the worst time in his life, Stephen was calm and confident, peaceful and forgiving in chaos and in hate. Why? Because God in those moments was assuring Stephen's heart, giving him grace and truth when he needed it. And God promises the same to each of us. So that's the story. Acts chapter 8 verse 3 ends with Jesus reigning even as persecution against him increases. He is Lord of all in all times and all circumstances. He will continue to be. And all history will continue until the day when the resurrected Jesus returns to end all wars, judge all enemies, and redeem all his people. And on that day, we will see what Stephen saw. And no weapon raised against the king will succeed. Jesus' glory is where all history is headed. Jesus' glory is the rest of the story. Will it be the rest of yours? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord of history, we ask that in any ways our stories are not aligned with yours, in ways that we're seeking rule to save ourselves. Lord, please show us. Show us that it's a bad idea. Show us Jesus, who's a good ruler and a gracious redeemer. And Lord, as your people, help us to live for his glory this week. Help us to go out from here wanting truly in our hearts that you would align our lives with making Jesus' glory known. And we pray you would use us for that. We long to be used by you for that. Please work in us. Please work in history to bring glory to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.